You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering The Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to another exciting day here at The Conservative Conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, at Conservative Review, powered by Westwood One Podcast Network. And it is Thursday. And guess what? That means it is almost time for the weekend, and I can't wait. But we still have so much more work to do this week. You know, part of why we are so busy here is because we're not one-trick ponies. We try to give you a, a full vision, a full picture, not just on what we shouldn't and should be doing on an individual issue, but the juxtaposition and the interplay between multiple policy issues and the politics thereof that all tie together. See, politics is an art. It's not a science. I always say that. And you can't look at things in a vacuum. Because everything that happens in this world, particularly in this generation with the collapse of sanity and morality and vision from the elites in Western civilization, there's a common thread to everything. Certainly everything within domestic policy and everything within foreign policy and national security, but then the interplay of the two as well. And nowhere has this been more evident than the work we've done tying together the following – Understanding the true opioid crisis, the true drug crisis, what it is and what it isn't. Healthcare, the border, immigration sanctuary cities, Hezbollah in Latin America, and narco-terrorism, the connection between drugs and national security, drugs and terrorism, and the proper priorities of national security, military intervention, alliances juxtaposed to immigration, And finally, this jailbreak bill and crime, drug sentencing, and all that stuff together. We have given a full vision on that. You know, some of you might know who I'm talking about, and I don't mean ill will here. But a friend of mine is bought into the jailbreak legislation. And it doesn't surprise me. Because she is the really what she's been doing in recent years is the exact opposite of what I'm doing. She's very siloed, very in, obsessive about individual things. Well, there's too many people, uh, you know, wrongly accused of crimes. Well, okay, well, that's that's a problem. But there's even more people that commit them and aren't prosecuted or under prosecuted. I mean, what, what does that have to do with with this effort, this jailbreak bill? I mean, I, I get that, but. You know, but that's the thing. People have their obsessions, and they don't see the full picture. And if you understood each issue properly, you wouldn't be supporting this jailbreak bill. But I don't want to just talk about the jailbreak bill today. You would understand what's going on with the opioid crisis, what it is and what it isn't. The first lady, Melania Trump, gave this uh, roundtable briefing lecture whatever you want to call it, 
with a couple other people from government. The Secretary of Homeland Security was there, Secretary of HHS, Azar was there at Liberty University to discuss the crisis of addiction. And I know I've gotten emails from many of you who are chronic pain patients in the audience with intractable lifelong pain and keep sending me your stories. By the way, I am reading them. You could email me at dhorowitz at crtv.com. But many of you understand this already and you know, you've lived it a lot more than I have, thank God. I don't have intractable pain. Although <laughs> I keep getting more back and and hip pain just by being a computer keyboard warrior all day and uh it's not good for my health. But anyway, um Really good feedback I've gotten, really good stories I've gotten from some of you, and basically the thrust of our thesis on the opioids and the drugs and what and the overdose crisis, what's going on, before we get into jailbreak and Hezbollah and terrorism, is this. The political class is perpetuating this big lie. That it's a healthcare-driven problem. That the pharmaceutical companies, whom I have no love for, by the way, for different reasons, they're a bunch of venture socialists, but they got everyone doped up on painkillers, on hydrocodone, oxycodone, tram- tramadol, um, codeine, morphine, whatever, and. You know, that got everyone all whatever, and people are dying and overdosing on that stuff, and that got everyone addicted, and to the extent there's an illicit drug problem, well, it all comes from that. It started with that. That's the gateway, and then somehow all these people, all you guys in the audience, veterans, seniors, even middle-aged that have intractable pain, you're just all a bunch of heroin dopes. Um, That's who you are, and that's the crisis, and therefore, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go and clamp down, have DEA clamp down on the production of pain medication to make it more expensive. We're going to have doctors stigmatized against prescribing. We're going to have insurers who are controlled by government, essentially, given guidance not to cover them. We're going to cut off your pain medication, all to obfuscate the real problem of drug trafficking, illicit drugs, Supply brought in by Mexican drug cartels with the Central American UACs and family units. The sanctuary cities that harbor them and allow them to operate in perpetuity without detection. We're going to let the drug traffickers out of jail. We're going to ignore the threat of Hezbollah and the narco trafficking. The criminal aliens in this country we let in both the, from Latin America and also the Middle Easterners that peddle either the cocaine for Hezbollah or the synthetic marijuana, the K2 and spice that's killing so many youth from the Yemeni-owned bodegas that we had Derek Maltz, a former DEA Special Operations Division head on our show twice. I'm in regular contact with him, by the way. I spoke with him a long time yesterday. So we're going to do the exact opposite. All... We're going to hurt chronic pain patients all for a big lie. The reality is, you know, Melania Trump said yesterday, and look, she, she doesn't know anything about this. I mean, she's just trying to do the, 
oh, the good, the good first lady work of, oh, you know, we need to treat people with addiction. And anyway, she said that opioid addiction is an illness that has truly taken hold of our country. I'm here to tell you that ignorance of the elites and policy is the addiction and the illness that has truly taken hold of our country. The reality is that, look, chronic pain dependency on narcotics is not ideal. But this stuff was invented. It takes the edge off the pain. It doesn't even – most of these people, they, they still feel a lot of pain. But it allows them to live functioning lives. Most of the people who are prescribed and taking it, take it properly, the overdosing is like 0.004%. The data proves this. It's remarkably low. They have never been susceptible to overdosing. It's a very strong dependency. It's not ideal. But you can't just cut them off until something else is invented, especially once we've had this. To the extent there might have been overprescribing either to too long for people post-op because you know, there's two spheres of, of people here. There's the long-term intractable pain patients, and then there's like, you know, you could have a regular long-term healthy person that just had a surgery and needs, you know, stuff seven to twenty days afterwards. And they're clamping down on both. To the extent it was overprescribed, that was in from 2005 to 2010. Starting 2010, they dramatically cut back. And that was before the baseline increase of the epidemic that started in 2013, 2014, intensified 2015, 2016, 2017, and has looks like it's somewhat plateaued on the opioid side, the heroin and fentanyl, but not on the cocaine and meth, which we're going to get to in a minute. So all of the, the prescriptions have plummeted. Prescription deaths have gone down already before the increase, the entire increase, the entire epidemic level, level explosion is in illicit drugs, both opioid and non-opioid, by the way, which are cocaine and meth or non-opioid. Both the more sedative stuff like, like heroin, which kind of calms someone, and the meth, which makes people go insane. The psychostimulants. The benzodiazepines, it's sleeping pills, it's everything. So it's incontrovertible now that it's all an illicit drug problem. So what the left is now saying and in the political class, well, okay, fine. But it started as the gateway with the opioid dependency from the prescriptions. Bull crap. It's not – It's you know, there's always going to be some overlap. But by and large, it's a very different population. It's not you in the audience. What we have going on in the country is not a medical pain patient problem. It's a cultural rot gut problem mainly more with the youth also with depressed people that are not mentally or behaviorally well and i'm not talking it down i'm just trying to identify the problem on the demand side that creates a demand for not just opioids but the psychostimulants the alcohol mixed with the benzodiazepines all of this is a polydrug crisis not opioids heroin is finally stabilized i mean at a very high plateau of overdoses the two sharpest increase, the biggest trends now, are cocaine and meth. And a lot of times, both are mixed with fentanyl. More of the pain patients are women. Not overwhelmingly so, but slightly more. Overwhelmingly, the overdose deaths are men. More of the pain patients are older. Overwhelmingly, the 
people dying now are younger. So that is the truth of where this is coming from. That's the demand. The demand is cultural. Commensurate with whatever supply you bring in, however deadly, people will dope up and die on it. That is sadly the society we live in. Where did the supply come from? That's what no one's asking. Why is it so cheap that every kid gets a hold of it? The deadly drugs. That is brought in through our open borders, the amalgamation of open borders, sanctuary cities, Right, That's why it happened right around the Central American surge and the growth of sanctuary cities. The timing is perfect. And our willful ignorance of the criminal alien networks we allow to operate in this country, Hezbollah operatives and others that are peddling this because increasingly terrorism is nurtured by organized crime. Among them, you have contraband, racketeering, but very prominently, the drug trade. And then we're letting go all the drug traffickers, and then we're not initially prosecuting as many as we used to, and now they want to go even further. That is your drug crisis, folks. That is your drug crisis. That is the truth. It's backed up by all of the, all of the data we've gone through. We have dozens of articles on this. That is what's going on. And that's what they're ignoring because it ropes in criminal aliens, it ropes in immigration policy, it ropes in border policy, it ropes in Mexican drug cartels, it ropes in Middle Easterners, it ropes in being tough on crime, all things they can't do. It's so much easier to go after Vietnam veterans on pain and cut off their pain medication. These are the coward vermin we have in our elites. Both parties, both movements, by the way. It's disgusting. So that's the juxtaposition of all of this. Now, there's one more ingredient that's very important when you talk about the drug crisis, drug trafficking, the so-called drug war, drug sentencing, law and order, incarceration, deterrent, and all of this stuff. So what's amazing, there is one other factor that happened. Actually, there's two other factors. Let me, before I get to that, let me just first say there is the, another factor that happened right around 2013 is the Medicaid expansion. To the extent it's a healthcare problem, it's the Medicaid patients. Um, a lot of them are often the people that unfortunately have the cultural issues, the socioeconomic issues in their life, and they are in, in a bad way, and they're on heroin, they're on this stuff. And they have health issues, and they get prescriptions, or they get from other people, and it's it's diverted. So this is the, the Medicaid expansion because basically it allows them to go to endless doctors and pharmacists. They could double, triple dip, and it's all free. There's no financial check on that behavior, and then they sell it. And so a lot of it gets diverted to the illicit market. So the, to the extent that there's a problem with prescriptions, it's not so much from the doctor's end. It's really the government fueling, enabling that population, not you guys, but the population that are drug addicts um, with the Medicaid to go and divert it. That's, that's another big thing that happened right around when the crisis took off because I'm the only one examining in full why. No one's asking, you know, uh, we had a lot of people addicted. Well, okay, fine. 
But suddenly after 20 years of prescribing, boom, in one year, it spikes 400%. And dude, something had to happen there. So there's another factor, and that is marijuana. So what's amazing is we're told they are certain that prescription painkillers are the gateway to heroin and and all the other stuff, even the non-opioids like meth, which is puzzling. But somehow, no, marijuana. No, 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 no. That's marijuana's awesome. Okay? Marijuana is just awesome. So the one other factor that led to this spike is the cultural addiction that was created with all the states essentially deregulating marijuana. That happened, again, right around from 2010 to 2014 and still going on. And um, the reality is this. Every year the government puts out, HHS puts out the annual um, National Survey on Drug Use and, and Health. And it's, it's very, very comprehensive. And one of their bullet points from this year, it just came out a month ago, the 2017 version, frequent marijuana use in both youth and young adults, because again, that's a population, appears to be associated with opioid use, heavy alcohol use, and major depressive episodes. Okay? Which gets me to my next thing about looking at the full picture of healthcare, culture, addiction, national security, Law and order, sentencing, drug trafficking, immigration, and all that. All the supply and demand push-pull factors together. And as you all know, I have an adage that you can't half-ass libertarianism. A lot of people are like, I don't care, I'll just have drugs. I'm locking too many people up for drugs. Stop this, Daniel. You know, I don't don't know, the war on drugs is a failure. The problem is they're right and wrong at the same time in the worst way. They're half-assing it. Here, here's, here's the thing. They're making all of the factors worse. They're exacerbating every factor. Full libertarianism, I'm not saying I necessarily agree with it, would work as follows. Sink or swim on your own volition. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to legalize everything, everything. Not just marijuana, everything. So there's going to be a parallel legal market that however you, you know, whatever you, you know, would imagine safe marijuana, safe meth or whatever, you know, you would have some sort of market oriented manufacturing in America, a legal avenue, a legal parallel market that would presumably be more scientific and more, you know, less prone to at least like immediate death with an uncontrolled fashion because, you know, you'd have the market would kind of dictate what's more safer and people would go to it. I'm just saying this is the, the theory. And so here's the deal. You want to get doped up on it? Go die. The market will correct itself and the next generation, no, no more people will use this because they're all dead. We're not going to subsidize you. We're not going to spend billions on these crony rent-seeking groups with their all addiction treatment and all these programs and, and coddle nanny statewide. We're not going to fund all this naloxone and Narcan to bring these people back alive, but then they still have the addiction problems forever that we're forever dealing with on the taxpayer dime. And then, most importantly, the theory goes that you would put the, both the drug cartels and the narco-terrorists out of business because now you have a legal, parallel legal market and you know they don't turn to them. 
And that was the theory behind legalizing marijuana. And they're right and they're wrong. If you want to do that, decriminalize it, meaning not just cut sentencing, but make a parallel legal market. And then, again, if you're going to be libertarian on the law enforcement side, you got to be libertarian on the fiscal, cultural side. Sink or swim, we'll come around with the garbage trucks the next day and pick up the bodies. You want to be a libertarian, that's what it means. What we're doing now is the worst mix of everything. All of this stuff is still completely illegal, except marijuana in enough states that's getting enough people culturally doped up on it. So the the, the libertarian's argument was, you want to put the drug cartels out of business, legalize marijuana. They were right. Marijuana trafficking is way down. Because they can get it now. But what they missed is the fact that there's LSD, cocaine, meth, crack, all the synthetic stuff and heroin and, and, and endless stuff. It, it gets them into it. So we're not descheduling that stuff. I mean, that would be kind of an interesting thing. I mean, tell me what you think about that. If you, but, but I'm just saying, I'm not saying I agree with it. I'm just saying if you're going to do it, you have to deschedulize everything. It's the worst mix to legalize marijuana but not the other stuff. And then all we're doing is being weak on immigration, weak on sanctuaries, which bring in the supply and allow the supply to remain in perpetuity. We're being weak on the drug traffickers. Okay? We're being weak on the sentencing. So there's no deterrent. So you have the massive flow from the immigration, the massive successful networks from sanctuary cities. Then you have the narco-terrorism foreign aspect of Middle Easterners, both legal and illegal immigration, coming in and supplying Hezbollah or the Yemeni racket with the K2 spice and getting people killed and funding evil at the same time. It's just straight-up leniency. That's what this, this bill doesn't – see, a lot of my libertarian friends, they reflexively – anything they believe that is being lenient on drugs, oh, I support it. But you can't half-ass libertarianism because it doesn't deschedulize or decriminalize anything. It just has less of a deterrent. So the, on the consumer end for the citizen who's addicted to this stuff, there's no parallel legal market. They still rely on the illicit stuff, and it funds all of the evil that comes with it. You're not putting them out of business. They're more in business than ever since we've legalized marijuana because of other stuff and because of open borders. So you have the supply mixed with the culture, cultural demand, not healthcare painkiller demand, cultural rock gut depression demand. And that is exacerbated by the legalization of marijuana. And now we have the worst terror financing ever through drugs. Mexican cartels are more empowered than ever. And that's it. I mean, you saw the Washington Post article where they, 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 um, they bring the family units right up to the border and the UAC is knowing that as part of being smuggled, they have to smuggle in drugs for them and they know we're going to be lenient if they have a kid. This is where the leniency is hurting us. And again, because increasingly... These people, the terrorists, are relying on the drug trade. Often when you catch a schlepper for drugs, 
that is the way to bust up a terror network. Not always. Often it has nothing to do with terrorism. It could be straight up the Mexican cartels. But especially if it's the cocaine trade, which we talked about last show, with the narco subs, and, and that this bill gets rid of the mandatory minimums for people caught on these narco subs bringing in through the maritime routes um, – all the cocaine, that's from the Colombian FARC, which is hooked in with Hezbollah. I'm going to link to in show notes. Um, my buddy Derek Maltz helped the Abba Eben Institute that's in Israel produce um, a 15-minute documentary on the global reach of Hezbollah and the cocaine trade. It literally just came out a couple minutes ago. It's on YouTube, and it's, it's a little annoying because it's in German, but there's English subtitles because they were doing this mainly for Europe. And the, the, the problem they have in Germany with the cocaine trade. Um, and you'll see how there's a very good chance if you catch a boat coming in with cocaine, if you would interrogate the hell out of these people and the leverage you have is by threatening to lock them up forever, that is exactly how you have – you know attract the honeypot. Um, and, uh, and there you go. There you go. So by getting rid of that investigative tool, you're really you're you're helping the terrorists. See, a lot of the libertarians respond, "Well, Daniel, you know, I know you're such a hawk on 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 the terrorism and the stuff like that. Well, you know, uh, just legalize it. You put them out of business. But but okay, then let's have that debate. But we're not doing that. That's not what this first step act does at all." And then quite the contrary, we're spending all this money on treating addiction and perpetuating people with addiction rather than killing them off. And again, I am not saying I believe in that. I'm saying the libertarian view. I'm not libertarian, but it might sound callous, but that is their view. But we're not even doing that. See, what, what bothers me about libertarians is this. They only have the balls to – and when I say libertarians, I mean the libertarian establishment, the donors and elite think tanks and groups, they only have the guts to join with the progressives when their stuff overlaps with what the progressive wants to do. But somehow when it comes to the free market stuff, okay, fine. Where are you saying we're going to oppose all these addiction treatment programs? Never. They don't have the guts to do that. They don't have the guts. Just like they don't have the guts to support criminal justice reform of being too tough and the, and the military criminal code on our best warriors that do too good of a job killing our enemy and get, get um, prosecuted. No, they're not going to go after that because it's not cool in the culture. Nobody said this better than Chuck Grassley before he supported this very bill and flipped because of the Coke money. He gave 10 passionate speeches against this very bill. July 14, 2014, he gave a speech Literally quoting my buddy Derek Maltz, I sent it to him. He didn't even know at the time because he was in government at the time. He was a D, D, SOD head at the time, and he was quoting him. He gave a whole speech on how when you get rid of the mandatories on drug trafficking because it's increasingly a national security problem, he said that he strongly opposed this bill because it would put – not only because, quote, this bill would put at risk our hard-won national drop in crime because, again, most of the drug traffickers are the ones doing the crime – 
but it puts our national security at increased risk. There is a growing nexus between drug trafficking and terrorism, a nexus that increasingly poses a clear and present danger to our national security. And then he went on to say, oh, reducing sentencing would denude us of that leverage in prosecution to bust up these networks. He said that four, four and a half years ago. Everything we know now with Operation Cassandra and the importance of Hezbollah to Iran, Hezbollah in Latin America on the cocaine trade, and they wanted them to shut down that operation. It's all the more so you have to oppose legislation like this. Every factor, by the way, that Charles Grassley gave to oppose the bill, strongly oppose the bill, lambast it, say it's Orwellian, it's absurd. It's driven by ideology, not facts. It's all stuff he said. Every factor, whether it's crime, whether it's national security, whether it's the immigration angle, which is very significant, it's only gotten worse. So there's no way you could say, well, now there's more of a way of um, – there's no, more of a rationale for, uh, for flipping on the issue. No, 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 no. Not at all. Not, not at all. Um, so anyway, that's with, uh, that's with that stuff. So this is more the, the um, drug angle I wanted to give you, the drug and the law enforcement sentencing crime angle. Now I want to get into more just the straight-up terrorism, national security, Hezbollah in Latin America, and Hezbollah in our own country problem that is being ignored, again, ties into political correctness, bad visa and immigration policy, lack of priorities on national security. We're too busy pissing around in Sunni dumpster fire tribal warfare holes that don't affect us, and yet we won't – and we can't fix anyway, and yet we won't aggressively go after all of the known Hezbollah operatives in our own country, have a Monroe Doctrine in the Western Hemisphere because – I ran through his bullet hurts us the most. And by the way, before I get to that, I just want to note one more thing on the drugs. The whole thesis of this, oh, we have a painkiller pharmaceutical problem in this country is built upon the fact that they like to say that we have like five to ten times the rate of prescribing in this country versus Europe. See, we have the problem. So therefore, again, like the, to the extent we have a drug problem, it's because of that. I'm here to tell you, watch this documentary I post, and you'll see them talk about the growing cocaine problem in Europe parallel with our cocaine and heroin problem in America. Hezbollah is earning $400 billion off of that. There's obviously addicted – there has to be some sort of market for it. Money talks. Now, Hezbollah, I believe they're also help with FARC, with the American market, but it's, their main thing is the um, European market. Okay, there's this whole circuitous money laundering operation through their banking system, used car sale lots in America from Shiite immigrants who should never be here, funneling money and the cars to West Africa where they launder it, take the profits into Europe for the cocaine – fun weapons and terrorism and all that good stuff. But you'll see Europe has a massive cocaine problem. Well, I, I thought they don't prescribe opioids there. Where is it? Again, it's a cultural generational problem with our youth 
now exp- expanding to everyone. It's a cultural problem that will always be fed commensurate with the supply that you have. The cultural problem is there. It's always getting worse. What changed the last number of years is the supply side because we're not doing anything about terror finance and really being strict on this. You want to stop it, we could stop it. It's a border problem. It's an international problem. You're never going to stop it completely. We don't need to. The goal in law enforcement is to mitigate a problem. But anyway, let's talk about this. Um, couple, uh, couple months ago, if you remember when, after Trump officially got out of the Iran deal, there was a major war of words between him and the Iranian leader, Rouhani. And at some point, Qasem Soleimani, the head of the Quds Force in the IRGC, which is the international special forces terrorism arm of Iran's military, um, which controls Hezbollah in Latin America as well as other operations, he got up there and said, hey, Mr. Trump, watch it. We're a lot closer to you than you think. And what he meant is because of our suicidal immigration policies and our focus too much on Afghanistan, Iraq, Somalia, and Syria over Latin American affairs and making the right alliances and the right carrot and stick approach in our own hemisphere with the Monroe Doctrine, Hezbollah is insane in terms of their power in Latin America, overtly and then quietly in our own country. You know, I was speaking with my buddy Todd Benzman last night. Um, he is at Center for Immigration Studies now. He is their national security guy. He's the guy that is connecting the immigration to the special interest aliens, the Middle Easterners coming through the border, Hezbollah in Latin America. He was a journalist for Hearst for many years, and he covered Latin America. Then he went into Texas Department of Public Safety Intel Division dealing with um, this, and now he's writing about it at CIS, at PJ Media, Um and he's written a number of articles I'm going to try to link to in show notes. We had him on the show a couple months ago. So I was speaking with him late last night, and you know, I was talking about Hezbollah in Latin America, and he was like, Daniel, we got Hezbollah in our country. And you know, I'm going to link to these articles where he goes through some of the best terrorism stuff actually comes from trials where you have convictions of certain individuals. The exposure of the information is unbelievable, and that's what he went through these cases, the some of the Hezbollah prosecutions we had we've had in America, um, the IRGC stuff controlled by Soleimani, they have it it's more covert because basically the difference between America and Europe and then certainly Latin America, which is just no man's land, is that so when you when you understand terrorism and you understand these guys, I, I had a friend of mine once tell me he worked in, in um special ops for many years. He said these guys aren't worried about the Johnny Sixpack, 75th Ranger Regiment guy stationed a couple miles next to him. That's not what they're thinking about. They're thinking about, you know, Joe Scarborough. I'm not kidding. They're thinking about people who have followings and influence in our in our media and our culture. It's the it's the civilization jihad that they subvert us from within. It's it's the IRGC, you know, international approach. It's the Muslim Brotherhood approach. Um, it's it's civilization jihad, and they use Western civilization's own suicidal elites to subvert them. You know why have a straight up war with modern technology, modern you know American warfare prowess 
when you could just subvert us through immigration, through political correctness, um, and and then you literally fund the terrorism on our own shores from the people we let in using our own economy to kill our own people with drugs and then you know fund terrorism and kill more people literally killing two two birds with one stone so what these guys are all about so anyway they understand that in Europe you know Europe is gone Europe is completely emasculated so they could be more open there and they are very open in America, it's still more subtle. It's very evident if you know where to look um, because they know that, thank God, we still have freedom of speech in this country. We still have shows such as this one. We still have a movement of Americans, and they're very well aware of that, that do not like them, and we will fight back against them, and we're not going to take this crap. So they have to be a little bit more subtle about it because if they – so they have the ability to bring in – people with suitcase bombs through the border, through the SIA routes because of our suicidal immigration policies and border policies. They already have the people in America, they don't have to bring in new people, that are trained under these groups. Trained under these groups. Um, and they could flip them on at any moment. That's the thesis of these pieces, and you'll see they're very, very, very detailed. He's a very ter- he's a terrific journalist, uh, Todd Benzman. Um, but that's the gist of what you're going to see from the articles. They could turn these guys on. They're like suit terrorists. They, they, let's say, like used car businessmen. You could turn some of these guys on as operatives at any point. Now, they're waiting for the right time because, again, you know, the, you know, sometimes the more you blow your cover, then we'll turn attention to them. And, you know, because we don't, they know we don't give a damn about the drugs and we're not going to stop that. You know, so they don't want to blow a multi hundred billion dollar industry with terrorism, which is why it's the terrorism they've done is more in places where they can get away with it. Like, you know, what's interesting. It just came out and he told me this last night and I just found an article um, showing this because uh, Todd is going to Panama because Panama is really the linchpin, the connection between South America and any routes North. He's going to Panama and uh, a couple months ago, Netanyahu visited Panama and he, gave the president a packet of Mossad intel showing that the famous 1994 um, airplane that blew up in Panama was a Hezbollah attack. Tw- you know, 23 years later, we now know this from the Mossad, it happened literally two weeks after the AMIA bombing, the Jewish community center in Buenos Aires that killed like 80 Jews, Hezbollah attack. So it makes a lot of sense. And it turns out that there were a tremendous amount of Jews on that flight in Panama. And that is chilling because, I mean, you see, you know, we know that they have a major base in Venezuela. We know they have in Argentina, the tri-border area of Brazil, Argentina, and um, Paraguay. But Panama, I mean, they, Hezbollah has their reach pretty much everywhere. Um, that's what Qasem Soleimani meant. And now you can understand that this is the threat. If you understand this show, you're going to understand what we should and shouldn't do on foreign policy, what we should and shouldn't focus on on military, what we should and shouldn't do and focus on alliances, what we should and shouldn't do on terror finance, what we should and shouldn't do on immigration, on what we do and not do on drugs, on prosecutions and incarceration and sentencing for drug trafficking. Drug trafficking is a national security slash immigration issue at its you know, antecedent level. Obviously, a lot more people get get um, roped into it. So that's the general full picture I wanted to give you that I promise you you're not going to get anywhere else. 
Okay, so the thing is, it's very rare to find the government actually talk openly about Hezbollah in Latin America, Hezbollah in our country. Uh, you know, it's all super classified, which is why, you know, many of us can ne never get access to the right material because uh, they're just not going to talk to us about it. It's all deeply classified. But what Todd Benzman, and I'm reading from his piece at PJ Media here, what he writes is that the U.S. The US State Department released its annual country reports on terrorism last month, looking back on the year 2017. The information about his bull in Latin America had to be stitched together from the tidbits here and there in its 340 pages. What gives this information more gravitas than other sources about his bull in Latin America is that State Department analysts put it in and it survived internal review process. Decent intelligence probably backs it up. For starters, Hezbollah has indeed, quote, maintained an interest in the region through 2017 primarily, quote, in financial and front fundraising activities. The report also hints at darker Hezbollah pursuits in the region. Countries where Hezbollah has been active in recent years include Brazil, Paraguay, Peru, Panama, Bolivia, and Argentina. Perhaps most interestingly, the report had this to say generally about terrorist groups in Mexico. At year's end, there was no credible evidence indicating that international terrorist groups have established bases in Mexico, worked with Mexican drug cartels, or sent operatives via Mexico into the United States. Good to know that the Mexicans, this is him saying now, good to know that the Mexicans have continued to rebuff Iranian efforts to set up shop here, as it did when I first reported on such an effort in 2009. Also, we can only hope it's true that the State Department knows of no other terrorist organization bases in Mexico. And here's the thing. You're not going to find a training camp in Mexico. It's a straw man, and and that's why they write it very carefully. Um, what you know, it's not you don't have like what you have in the tri-state area in Mexico. You're not going to have that where it's like they basically like own the area. But what you do have is, um, you know, smuggling routes that they're very much connected into, and there's a lot going on there. Um, let's see what else we have here. Just trying to see see more. You know what? I'm I'm just gonna. I mean, you should you should really read all of this. Um. Here here's just another thing they say: the U.S. southern border remains vulnerable to terrorist transit. The report states, adding, although terrorist groups likely seek other means of trying to the United States. Yeah, I mean, we don't deny that. That's still the main thing is the fact that we've brought in. Two million Muslims on green cards since 9/11, and you know, a million or two others on student visas and other visas. So yeah, I mean that's more vulnerable. Um, but you, you you definitely do have the border issue. Um, many Latin American countries have porous borders, limited law enforcement capabilities, and established smuggling routes. These vulnerabilities offer opportunities to foreign terrorist groups, but there have been no cases of terrorist groups exploiting these gaps to move operations through the region. When, again, what they mean is actual terrorist attacks. Um, you know, Todd has put together a series of 15 terrorists that have been caught through the border um, over the last number of years. He has a whole series on that as well. So um, we're going to link to all this in show notes. I'm just going to just start another piece from his. This is um, his part two of Unit 910. Exposed in court proceedings. Hezbollah Unit 910. Bronx-based Ali Karani faces trial from, for multiple charges related 
to his work as a double agent for the U.S. designated terrorist group Hezbollah, specifically for its external security organization known as Unit 910. And the date of the trial is set for next March. As a card-carrying read-in intelligence operative for Hezbollah's noxious foreign terrorism wing, Karani was expected to do far more than videotaping a Manhattan armory and gather names of Jewish businesses from LinkedIn to knock off one day. He was expected to keep his killing skills sharp. In part one, I revealed part of what Karani, a U.S.-educated engineer with an MBA, told FBI agents in a series of confessionary interviews about his alleged double life with Hezbollah's Foreign Terrorist Service Unit 910. He said it recruited him to become a U.S.-based asset in 2008 during a visit to Lebanon where his extended family clan was deeply enmeshed with the group. I mean, these are the people we're letting in. Karani allegedly told of how, at just the time he qualified for U.S. citizenship, in 2008, he received some initial cloak-and-dagger tradecraft training and was sent to his new homeland, America, with his first easy assignments. He was to apply for U.S. citizenship so he could get a cherished U.S. passport, videotape, an armory, an FBI office, and gather names of local Jewish businessmen or high-ranking Israeli defense veterans worth killing. He also sent back to Lebanon intelligence about how passengers disembark from planes at JFK International, how U.S. customs officers screen and collect luggage, and the location of security and cameras and magnometers. But much more was to come after he achieved citizenship in 2009. Karani told FBI, and by the way, this is all coming from FBI 302 reports that are almost always blocked out, but they actually have it open in the the court um, documents that he took this from. Uh, Karani told the FBI understood that in the event of war with Israel, he could be called home to fight, that this was expected of all Unit 910 agents throughout the United States, Canada, and in Latin America and across the globe. This is nutty stuff, folks. So we're going to link to this in show notes. Um, But Todd's work is insane. (laughs) We have to get him back on the show. He's the only one doing this type of journalism. Um, terrific guy. So we're gonna we're gonna link to this stuff. But holy smokes, is this nuts? You know, and I just want to comment on something. These liberal vermin, including liberal Jewish organizations, are invoking the Holocaust and fleeing the Holocaust to let in open borders, endless MS thirteen people, and including endless Middle Eastern migration. Folks, you are now bringing in people that hate Jews and their plan is to kill Jews. I mean, just understand. You had in L.A. last week, the guy arrested Muhammad Muhammad, a Somali immigrant. Somali, we've had the worst sort of experiences of all countries from the 130, 150,000 Somalis we brought in almost exclusively as refugees since 1993. He parked himself outside of an L.A. synagogue to mow down Jews, vehicular jihad, which originated in Israel, with the Palestinians, on our soil. It, it is a total media blackout and total blackout from all these NGOs that promote refugees and open borders, bringing in the persecutors under the guise of persecution and invoking Jews. Are you kidding me? This is the sort of crap we're bringing into this country. And you tell me we need to go to Afghanistan to protect our national security? We need to stop letting them in, the ones we let in. We need to surveil them. 
And we need to bring them up on charges, the ones that we have evidence for. We need more of these trials. Man, this, I mean, and and it's so cheap, it doesn't cost anything to not self-immolate. It doesn't cost trillions of dollars of refereeing Islamic civil wars in all these countries. That's all we need. That is all we need. Man, is this nuts. Drives me crazy. I want to move on to domestic policy. And again, seeing the full picture as we start out our thesis for today, domestic policy ties in because it all ties into money. See, most problems are not monetary problems, and the solution is not throwing money at the problem. Most problems are policy-oriented, not financially-oriented. And you see that with we're draining so much money under the guise of counterterrorism when really we're making things worse or getting involved in stupid things. And the things that do harm our security don't cost us anything to redress. Which brings us to the budget bill and the rest of the lame duck. The complete backwards priorities. Yesterday, I gave the moral and fiscal case for why the budget is the foundational fight of immigration, even though you think of immigration as more of like a a law, legal type of fight, national security, foreign policy, border fight. It's not so much fiscal, right? And I note that the ultimate goal of the government is to protect us from public charge of of foreign nationals. That is, there's nothing more fiscal than that. And that it's very much appropriate for the budget, but the solution is not a budgetary item. It's not so much a budgetary item, it's policy that needs to be placed in the budget. So I'm, you know, I know I'm repeating myself here, but I still maintain the same concern that I have that Trump has already ceded 95% of the debate and he doesn't even realize it. He's now negotiating between 1.8 billion or 5 billion for a border wall which will take a while to construct anyway and won't deal with the emergency we have. It's not a funding problem. It's not a money issue. It's a policy problem of open borders that, again, I believe very passionately he doesn't need Congress to act on that. But certainly I think it's important if we're going to use a budget bill to fight over, it's not worth a few billion dollars. That's not the issue. It needs to be sanctuaries, asylum, UACs, and judicial supremacy. That needs to be addressed. We need to fix the loopholes, and that's what he needs to give a speech about. So you could read this article there. But it looks like either way Republicans are going to cave. And what is their priorities? So they don't want to fund... And again, it's not really funding so much, but the perception is it's funding the border security. That what they do want to fund is welfare, dependency, venture socialism with healthcare, and all that stuff. I'm going to have a piece out talking about the GOP's problem of low tax socialism. That the debt, it continues to explode. The interest on the debt is at a tipping point. And Republicans made it worse. You know, I remember writing press releases for candidates running for office in the 2010 Tea Party wave. And we were talking about, the debt has surged to $13 trillion. Can you imagine that? And lo and behold, Republicans won on that message, and they won. And they took over the House. They didn't have everything, but they had the House. 
And guess what? Since then, the debt is now at $21.8 trillion. What was previously unfathomable, we blew it out beyond belief. It's now $21.8 trillion after they have the trifecta of control. And including, by the way, since Trump took office, the debt has increased $1.9 trillion in 22 months. And the, traje- tra- the trajectory is much worse. We're on pace for like $1.2 trillion debt. They're a deficit this year. And the problem is Republicans keep – what's their focus? Not cutting spending. It's increasing spending. They're going to have a disaster bill in this. The trillion-dollar farm bill locking in the existing baseline and expanding some market-distorting programs You know where basically government subsidizes certain crops to subsidize certain behaviors. It's literally the Obamacare of agriculture. Distorts the market of crop use, of land use, artificially creates asset bubbles. It's horrible what we do with the farming programs, not to mention the food stamp aspect of the bill. They just forged the deal in conference committee on that, you know, where both parties get together and agree to each other's spending, and they call it bipartisanship. So that's going to be this week. Maybe, I mean, maybe the bill is probably going to be put on the floor next week. So they're going to have that, more disaster spending. And then they have this along this $56 billion tax extender package. Now, some of them are legitimate tax cuts. Others are these parochial, like, biofuels credits. And my point is, just like we started out the show talking about how you can't can't half-ass libertarianism, you can't half-ass free marketism either. In other words, Tax cuts, I believe very strongly in low taxes. I believe in the veracity of it. I believe in the job creation of it and the stimulus of it and the morality, the private property rights of it. But you reach a point both policy-wise and politically that if all Republicans succeed at doing, and they have succeeded in Reagan, Bush, and Trump now in cutting taxes and cutting taxes, but then doing nothing on the spending Regulatory, when I say regulatory, I don't mean like the bogus regulations you hear, oh, Trump is cutting. I mean the Obamacare's, the market distortions, the, the big legacy items on education, healthcare, and housing that, that we're only expanding, we're not getting rid of. Ethanol mandate, cafe standards, Federal Reserve that permanently misallocate resources, distort investments, create an inefficient dumpster fire economy that even when it's working good for what it can work and has a the best job market since the 60s, but we don't have the economic growth of the 60s. Good economic growth, but this is the best times we have where we need to actualize the most growth we can get, and certainly things are going to get worse, and that's because of the misallocation of resources and the debt, and then the programs that are funded by the debt that distort the market itself. So it's a double whammy. So that's the problem. The debt is such... We are going to spend as much in the coming year on interest on the debt is the Medicaid program, which is expanding like wild. Five years from now, it's going to surpass military spending. And the problem is that at some point, as much as I always in favor of giving people their money back, more of it in a vacuum, but what happens is, first we'll get to the policy problems, then the um, political problems. The policy problems. The, the the problem is that you are exacerbating the debt. Then, you know, again, I'm not one of these that says like every tax cut has to be dollar of dollar paid for. That you view, view it like a spending increase that needs to be offset. 
But you do reach a point where you're so into tax cuts, but then so into increasing spending as Republicans, that it's like then it, they play against each other because then it does hurt those very same taxpayers that now the amount of money that's being flushed in the garbage on paying interest on the debt goes from you know 230 billion a year to 500 billion and then 700 billion and then a trillion and then that's our tipping point you can't do this fine i agree with the tax cuts until now but you can't go further it's got it's time to stop being this one trick pony just because that's where the special interests are there's no special interest in cutting spending just the opposite you're running up against all of them see the problem that people don't realize what's happening with the debt is that it's a death spiral the more desperate we are to service the debt because the more spending we have the higher the interest rates have to rise because we're more desperate to attract the investors in the treasuries that in turn the more you raise interest rates it, it attracts even more investments into the treasuries diverted away from the private economy whether they're domestic or foreign investors they instead invest in nothing more than democrat dependency vote getting programs rather than real economic growth factories production goods and services raw materials and then it creates a perpetual death spiral of more debt more interest and less private investment constantly reinforcing itself. That's the issue that we haven't had until now with the debt that because of the low interest rates, this hasn't gotten us. Now it is. This is why this is not the, you know, the kid that cried wolf. This is really going to get us now. And there's no answer to it other than pass another omnibus with more spending increases, more disaster relief that should have already been cut covered, more um you know, the, the, the farm bill. And then this, this tax extenders package, which again has a lot of special interest handouts in it. Parochial stuff, $54.7 billion. Now, I think the $54.7 billion includes the disaster relief in the, in the package. Um, so that's with that. But then there's something more broad. There's the political ramifications. I mentioned this point before, and I think it's worth reiterating here today. Lack, low tax socialism is creating the worst dynamic where we're empowering the business venture socialist cultural Marxists to benefit from our low tax regime to then turn around and use that to promote cultural Marxism, open borders, jailbreak, criminal reform, the homosexual agenda, homofascism, transgenderism, refugees, Muslim immigration. And then even on fiscal issues, it's only the tax cuts they like. They promote Obamacare. They promote the market distortions that they benefit from, all the regulations that they, that they like that keep competition from entering. And they support the entire envir um, environment, uh, ent entitlement state, the welfare, because they're seen as good people. See, businesses love to be good people with other money. They're always accused of being greedy. So the way they kind of have their... Um, you know, progressive writ of acceptance is by saying, hey, I'm for open borders, I'm for Muslim immigration, I'm for jailbreak, good for the criminals, I'm for the homosexual agenda. Oh, and by the way, I'm for endless welfare, as long as we don't have to pay for it. And that ties into also, guess what? Republicans, not only aren't they going to do what we want to do on the budget, they're massively expanding on immigration, they're massively expanding H-2B visas. These low-skilled workers, 
that you know they say they want them for all these industries, but they want them so they can pay slave wages. Now, that's fine, but who's going to take care of them? We're told that we have to take care of them. They come in here on tour on on worker visas where they're not permanently domiciled and their kids shouldn't be automatic citizens, but they are given citizenship. So they get welfare on their behalf. They're impoverished as anything precisely because they pay them slave wages. You go eat it. There's more to society than them. You got to look holistically at a free market patriotic nation state. You can't just look in a vacuum at a spreadsheet of corporate lobbying for low taxes. I'm all for very low taxes. If you have all of the other elements with it, when you don't, it's worse than before. See, if we would allow Bernie to just say, screw it, we're done with the tax cutting, let him raise taxes on them, it would force them to pick a side. And they can't use the benefits of the tax cuts to kill us on every other fiscal issue and certainly social and national security immigration issues. That's the problem that we're facing with the venture socialists and the business world. Then there's also the political problem on the individual, not just the corporate tax cuts, but the individual tax cuts. Because we've cut taxes so much and we've really weighted it not towards the top because we're scared of the political backlash, it's more towards the bottom and middle. And, you know, I mean, even people at my income level, I will say, I don't, you know, my main problem is the cost of living because of socialism. It's low tax socialism. But the tax burden is a lot lower on people like us than our counterparts in Europe. In Europe, you know, the tax rate for like people earning, you know, not a million dollars, but like 95,000, 100,000 a year is 40% if the national tax, I mean, it's very high. Very, very high, very, very high rate. There's something to be said about that. Daniel, what do you mean? You're, you're European socialist? No. But I'm saying there's something in some ways, just like how I say, Venture socialism in healthcare in America in some ways is worse than European socialism. So, so too at low-tax socialism. Because at least in this country, because we have a tradition of lower taxes, if we would suddenly have Bernie just raise taxes demonstrably on the people and not just on the wealthy, people would feel the freaking pain. If you're going to have the market-distorting dependency programs that promote venture socialism – Empower the business elites and government to create dependency and Democrat voters. Then I want you to feel the pain. I want you to feel it. Then pay the taxes. What they've been able to do with the debt servicing and the treasuries is service socialism with low taxes. And I, I agree, Reagan, you know, that was very bad. The taxes had to be lowered. That was good. But at some point, we needed to move away from tax cutting temporarily and go to spending cutting and government reform and government reduction and then go back to tax cutting but to do tax cut and then another one and another one and then put another one and then all the while not just not cutting government but growing it in every single sphere beyond a, beyond what reagan, reagan could have imagined it hurts us policy wise and political wise so just wanted you guys to take away from that you know what you can. I know I was a little quick on that and I hope to, you know, dedicate more of a full show to this as we get through some of the fiscal aspects of the lame duck session of the budget. Just want to end with one thing. Um, you have judge Timothy Farr, this judicial nominee that represented North Carolina in their f photo ID fight. And now he's, uh, being nominated to be a fourth circuit judge. And, Basically, 
Jeff Flake placed a, blo- a blockade where he's not going to vote for any Trump nominees until he gets his Mueller vote. Now, if you just lose him, so theoretically, you still have 50-plus Pence's tiebreaker. They had to put off the vote because they don't have the votes now. Do you know who one of the swing votes is? One of them is Murkowski, but do you know who the other one is? Tim Scott. The same man who downed a good man to be Ninth Circuit judge, and the same man maniacally promoting the gang of jailbreak because he's bought into that racialist agenda, and he's not what any of you thought he was. He's another rhino that now we bought from South Carolina, and the whole the irony is all the rhinoism is obfuscated by their one thing they'll fight on, which is judicial noms, and now we have a guy from South Carolina that will block judicial noms. So Thomas Farr, I said Timothy is Thomas Farr from North Carolina. Um, I'm sorry, did I say Fourth Circuit? I mean, it's it's in the auspices of the Fourth Circuit, but it's a district judge. Um, he's being nominated for the Eastern District of North Carolina. And again, that's very important because we know North Carolina, more than any other state, is getting crushed by the district and circuit judges there, and it would be good to at least have another good one. I'm forgetting if he's replacing another good guy or not, because often that's the case. We're not really turning over the judiciary. But anyway, so much going on, um, so much more to say. I'm going to try to do an extra episode of Foreign Policy Friday tomorrow with Jordan, and maybe we'll just clean up some extra, even non-foreign policy stuff we didn't get to. Um, thanks for listening. As always, tweet tweet me at armconservative. Email me at dharowitz at crtv.com. God bless y'all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conservative Conscience.